sex, pride and discipline in the local church. These are the three big themes that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and that's where we're up to in our preaching series. So let me read to you uh, the passage it will come up on the screen as well as we go. It says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray as we look at this passage, again, dense and rich and complicated and also slightly challenging, I pray, Holy Spirit, teach us, help us to apply these truths to our lives, into our church, into our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I had a title for my sermon, it would be this, that holiness is a whole church responsibility. I mean, one thing you do get when you read Paul's letters like this is a sense of his passion. Paul is passionate for Jesus, for the gospel and for people. And it's because of these passions that he's also longing for a holy church, a church that honours Jesus, a church that proclaims and witnesses to the gospel, a church that sees many people saved and transformed. And today, under this heading, I want to highlight three ways in which we can take collective responsibility for the holiness of God's church. And number one is this, that we recognise the destructiveness of unchecked sin. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old, he says, and be the new unleavened bread that you really are. Did you know that yeast is a fungus and it's been used for millennia to make bread rise, to make 
uh, alcohol ferment. Despite all its amazing properties, many mentions of yeast in the Bible are actually negative in connotation. The fact is you only need a small amount of yeast for it to spread and affect the whole batch of dough. And so it makes a great illustration for the destructive effect of sin, whether in our own personal lives or in the life of God's church. The smallest sin spreads and infects. We might say it's like mold or, or wildfire or cancer in the way it has a destructive influence. The imperative here then is for us to be ruthless with sin. Whatever type of sin it might be, sexual immorality or all the other ones that Paul lists in verse 11. But there are two specific sins which Paul's become aware of in the life of the Corinthian church that he wants to explicitly address. The first one is that someone is sleeping with their stepmom. I mean, this is a very specific case of sexual immorality. It sounds shocking, and it would have been shocking even to the Corinthian culture at large. They didn't tolerate such things, even though they were a very sexually promiscuous society. Now, we don't know and don't get here all the details, but it does appear in the way Paul talks about it, that there is a Christian man within the church body who's having what seems to be consensual, uh, consensual sex with um, his non-Christian uh, stepmother. That's what we can surmise. Paul doesn't want this individual case to infect the whole batch of dough that is the church in Corinth. That's why he's so adamant. You need to deal graciously yet firmly with a blatant, sinful, consistently unrepentant Christian in this case. But there's a second specific sin that Paul has identified. That is the pride of sexual freedom. In fact, Paul seems to be more shocked by the church's collective unresponsiveness to this pastoral situation than he is with the couple's conduct themselves. Paul concludes this is further evidence of pride in their lives. He says as much in, in, in verse 1, uh, a man sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud uh, in the same sentence. Then he returns to the theme in verse 6, your boasting about this is not good. And then he goes on straight away to talk about yeast and bread as a metaphor for sin and the church. Pride is the yeast as well as this sexual immorality. And we've benefited, haven't we, of walking slowly through the whole letter of 1 Corinthians because we're seeing again and again this big topic of pride that Paul is peeling back the layers of. Their boasting has become epidemic amongst them. We've already seen how they have an overinflated view of the apostles like Paul, but also an overinflated view of themselves. And now they've got this other pride issue in relation to how they're responding or not responding to this case of sexual immorality. So what was it that they were proud about? It doesn't really spell it out in this passage as clearly as maybe some of the earlier uh, areas of pride. But perhaps it's to do with their understanding of love and freedom. 
I mean, it's true. God is love and Christ has set us free by faith. These are core tenets of the gospel, immovable. But perhaps some were arguing that freedom in Christ meant that believers were free to do whatever they liked. They could love who they wanted in the way they wanted, unbound, if you like, from the few cultural taboos that were still around at the time, let alone the law of Moses. I mean, this was sexual revolution on steroids, and it was going on inside the church. You know, if we're going to take collective responsibility for church holiness, then we each need to recognise the destructive potential of unchecked sin, of all varieties. And secondly, we need to contribute to a culture of sincerity and truth. Let's look at verse 8. Firstly, this applies to our own lives. It says this, Therefore, let us keep the festival, I think talking about communion, bread and wine, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's passion for the church spills out in his desire for them to be characterised by a culture of sincerity and truth. He wants the church to be a community full of saints, alive and free in Christ, deciding to live in radical obedience to Jesus, in, in obedience to Jesus and his way and his truth and his life. You see, our freedom in Christ, yes, it does mean that we are free, genuinely free, but not to do as we please, but free to follow Christ, even when that means making the costly decisions of aligning our lifestyle to his, of our desires to his. And in the realm of sexual ethics, that means acknowledging, for example, that sex is for marriage, that marriage is for life, that marriage is for one man and one woman. And these boundaries are hardwired by God in creation for our good and for human flourishing. Yet for each of us, whether we're married or single, there will be a cost. For all of us, I think that will mean being ruthless with lust and flirting and innuendo and pornography. For some of us, that will mean remaining committed in marriage when that's difficult and inconvenient and feels like it's giving more than receiving. And when that is our dominant culture, I believe it makes it possible for those who are trying to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, and for that, for them, that means in celibacy. Whether opposite or same-sex attracted, whether single by choice or circumstance, whether gender content or dysphoric. Why? Because that's the atmosphere where everyone is picking up their cross and following Jesus wholeheartedly, with full sincerity and in truth. It provides them with strength and with hope 
to do the same. That's the minority that we as church want to provide a safe and enriching and affirming place to belong. The same applies whatever ethical framework we're looking at, whether it's drunkenness or greed, whether it's slander or swindling. Paul applies the same principles to all those arenas. Secondly, we need to contribute to this in each other's lives. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Paul's explaining that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a responsibility to judge one another. Shock, horror, you may draw an intake of breath at that moment. Those with good memory might recall that only a couple of weeks ago we looked at chapter 4, which seemed to say something in the opposite. It said that, yes, the Lord is the one who judges, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. So what is it? Are we to judge one another or not to judge one another? Well, I do believe chapter 4, chapter 5 are talking about different aspects. Chapter 4 is talking about not judging one another's fruitfulness or our effectiveness as Christians. But chapter 5 is talking about our sinful behaviour. And that is an area where we are to judge one another. There is permission to speak into each other's lives on that basis. I mean, it's simply part of one anothering. I'm told that in Scripture, in the New Testament, there are 59 specific one anothering instructions of how we're meant to relate to one another as part of church community. And they include some wonderful things like loving and caring and serving and building up and honouring and accepting and comforting and encouraging and praying for one another. But there's also a command to admonish one another. Romans 15, Colossians 3. Now, we might not relish that one quite as much, but it's part of the mix. And it doesn't mean scolding. The emphasis here is on reminding and advising one another. The emphasis is on wanting the best for each other. And in a context where the other 58 one anothering instructions are evident, I think admonishing and doing so well has a chance. And it's actually vital if we're going to grow and mature and be fruitful together. So if we're going to take collective responsibility for the holiness of the church, we're going to need to be sincere about our own discipleship, dying to self and our preferences and opinions when we need to align them to that of Jesus. And it means raising a high bar on what it means to be part of a Christian community that shares life, that disciples one another, because that will mean the need at times to have some more difficult conversations. And thirdly, we're to apply the phases and the focus of church discipline if we're going to take collective responsibility for the holiness of church. Let's look at verse 2. It says this, put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this, referring to uh, the inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. Paul, I mean, Paul's got some really clear instructions about this particular scenario. 
But his instructions here are, I believe, just a simple application of Jesus's teaching. The teaching we find in Matthew chapter 18, which we can break down into four phases. As I quote, phase one is this. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Phase two is this, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's, that's the principle of Deuteronomy. Phase three, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Phase four, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's interesting, we often quote Jesus' promise, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. It's interesting though, and we forget this, that that promise concludes this very teaching on church discipline, as we call it. The promise is that God's manifest presence is increasingly evident amongst us the more we regard holiness as a whole church responsibility. And I think that should provide us with a spur to extra motivation. I mean, Paul's only getting involved as an apostle, as an outsider speaking into the church because they're clearly ignoring Jesus's instructions here. They're not getting on with it and he wants to straighten it out. Paul's assessment is clear from what he's heard and his understanding. They're already at phase four. That's clearly the, the place they've got to. Most, if not everybody in the church, knows what's going on. They seem to be condoning it by their passivity. And even some are celebrating it as some type of spiritual success. Now, you've got to understand, Paul's not leapt from phase one to phase four in a, heart, in a, a heartbeat. This, this has been going on for some time. Chloe and her household, who we heard had reported to Paul back in chapter one, have probably been the, the ones to report this. No doubt they have been trying to apply phase one to phase three as best they could, but maybe not with the support of everybody else playing their part. What do they do? Well, thankfully, they've got outside influence. They go to Paul as the apostolic input and the same route should be available to us in our church context as well. But that, they're the phases of church discipline applied from the teaching of Jesus, but I think it's also important to understand the focus of church discipline. It's not just a process. There's a tone, there's an attitude behind it. I mean, just from what Jesus said, it's clear his objective is that people would listen and be won over. We're not trying to win an argument, we're trying to win people back to God. We've got to do everything we can to help people receive and respond, to repent and be restored. That's our heart. I mean, the desire would be for, for all issues in church life like this to be resolved by phase one and phase two. That wouldn't therefore need the elders or let alone apostles, to get involved at all. But sometimes that may be necessary. Again, it just highlights, doesn't it, how church-wide this sense of responsibility is. We talk about on our membership courses here at Everyday Church what it means practically. It means 
being prepared to give and receive admonishment from one another regarding our own sinful behaviour or theirs that has been witnessed, that has got some evidence. Again, our passage here in 1 Corinthians highlights areas of focus in this process. They begin with letter S. Number one is sorrow. It says in verse two, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? You know, there is an appropriate sadness when having to deal with blatant and willful, unrepentant sin in the life of the church. I've just finished in my own personal time reading the book of Ezra in the Bible. And at the end there, really struck by how the news of sexual sin amongst the returning exiles coming back to Jerusalem really affected Ezra. And we were told he, he broke down, he wept bitterly. He, he threw himself on the floor. It was, a, it, was, it, 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 was, it was sad to the core and it showed and others joined him in it. For us, I think that means whether we're at phase one or phase four, we progress, we, we, we have these difficult conversations in an attitude of prayer and even fasting. There's a mournfulness. We should fast and pray because we are going to need the Holy Spirit. We're going to need the Spirit's wisdom and grace if we're going to handle our responsibility in all of this well. The second S is for sanctification. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, Paul says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul here is echoing Jesus' heart for restoration. He's confident that the gospel is not only the means for paying the penalty for our sin once and for all, but is also the means for dismantling the power of our sinful tendencies day by day. That's what he means by, by the flesh, these sinful tendencies that we, we still have to live with, or the after effects of, uh, as Christians still on earth until glory. But we can overcome them in Christ. The third S is for separation, uh, expressed in a number of ways, including in verse 11. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer, drunkard or swindler. Jesus' instruction for phase four was to treat the sinful brother or sister like a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, like an unbeliever. And Paul is applying this into the church age. There means there need to be, therefore, some sort of separation between the unrepentant professing Christian and the church. That's the reality. There needs to be. And he's expressed it in various ways, putting out a fellowship, handing over to Satan, expelling, not associating, not eating with, probably referring to not eating communion with. But in, in all those expressions, that the, the effect is the same. In, in effect, they're now outside of the church in some way or other and not inside the church of God's people. It's not that we're questioning their salvation. That's something for God and God alone to judge. It may be possible that their unrepentant behaviour is evidence that maybe they were never sin, uh, never Christian uh, originally. But that's that's for him to ascertain. Paul refers, therefore, to those who claim to be brothers or sisters but don't act as it. Well, that may be the case. 
But either way, we're to treat them now as an unbeliever. But let's just remember, how did Jesus treat the so-called sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors? He befriended them. He spent time with them. He loved them. He exposed them to his truth, to his kingdom, to his gospel. That should be our attitude. We're not looking to ostracise them for the sake of it, but to expose them again to the gospel of grace, confident that the gospel is the power of God for sanctification, for change, for making them more like Jesus, as it is for salvation. And the fourth S is spirit. So when you're assembled, says Paul in verse 4, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. As we've already said, we need the Holy Spirit, his presence, his wisdom, his guidance and direction throughout this process. And in the rare occasions that we get to phase four, and in my experience in our kinds of churches, I think it is, and it should be, a rare experience. Our precise measures, what we actually do in every setting and situation, the timings we set, the, the, the points of review that we come to, they must be spirit-led. There's, there's not a manual we can just overlay off the shelf. We've got some principles, but we, there's always the scenario, there's always the specifics, there's always the individuals involved and we should probably be staggered about it. Now it might mean asking them to stop serving in a particular area of church life because that's on trust that uh, that some areas of serving are for believers, are for members, are for leaders and that may not be appropriate. It may alternatively mean oh, please don't take bread and wine with us. We need a public way. You need to know you're you're now on the outside and that might be it. They may still be there with us in life groups on Sundays, but it may be that it's not Sundays or it's not life groups or it's not in church membership. One or all or any number of those. We need to go carefully and slowly and discern the Spirit's leading in all of those cases. We're not going to take any of that lightly. And any one of those measures can be reversed uh, as dialogue continues, as response is made and discerned. Well, I really hope that this passage, it might be quite serious, but it's helped you and hopefully it's helped you to see that holiness is a whole church responsibility. So let's recognise the destructiveness of unchecked sin in our own lives as much as anyone else's, including that of pride as well as any other kind of behavioural area. Let's each contribute to this culture that we're building of sincerity, on truth, that we can all pursue a wholehearted relationship with Jesus, aligning to his word. That's our personal discipleship journey. And it's the way we one another each other in a holistic and complete way. And let's apply the phases and focus of church discipline when we need to. Let's also admonish with an aim to restore our brothers and sisters to Christ. I'd love to end though with a return to the gospel. Paul does that in the centre here of this passage in verses six to eight, talking about the yeast and bread as a metaphor for the gospel. This, I mean, this metaphor is so rich in layers and understanding. Firstly, it resonates with the Jewish festival of Passover. Recording the day that the Hebrews were commanded to eat unleavened bread, bread without yeast, it might be flat, might not last long, but they're in a hurry, in a rush. To eat it alongside this sacrificed lamb, this roast lamb, 
And as they did so, and as they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their houses, the promise was that the angel of death would pass over them whilst looking to kill the firstborn of every household that wasn't marked as such. That saved them and gave them the entry into freedom. Secondly, of course, this yeast bread metaphor, it resonates so much more with us as believers in Christ because it's Jesus Christ who became the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb when he died on the cross. It's his blood and faith in his blood applied to our lives ensures we too avoid the passing over of death and can enter into the freedom that Christ has secured for us. And then thirdly, Paul's instruction here was to keep the festival in verse 8. I think that's reference to taking the bread and the wine. Paul's going to talk about that more in chapters ahead of this letter. But the, the, the bread and the wine is a, is a Jesus-given, public, multi-century proclamation of the gospel. We need to preach this gospel to us again and again if we're going to be a holy, sanctified people. And there's another way in which we can do that in him. Thank you.